Hi, everybody. My name is Anne McElhenney, and welcome to the Anne and Film Scoop with just Anne McElhenney. I'm flying solo again today, but this will be the last uh, podcast on my own film. We'll be back next week. Um, and you'll forgive his absence when you find out what he's been up to. It is week 107 of the two weeks to flatten the curve lockdown, by the way. I need to not forget to say that. Um, but even though I I've, I've, don't have Phelim, I have Magda here to keep me on the straight and narrow. Um, and because Phelim is in Ireland, we won't be celebrating his birthday. So his birthday is is actually when we're taping today. So he's working away and we're going to see him soon. But um, later we're going to be talking to our very dear friend, Robert Bryce, about the Biden administration's efforts to get through their, push through their climate agenda Um by bypassing Congress. Um, and we're also going to look at the real costs of the pandemic, which are just being discovered by the Pulitzer Prize winning journalists at the LA Times and the New York Times. God forgive them. Um, and we don't have a recipe today, but I am introducing a new feature on the podcast, which I'm calling right now, but we might change the name. But for right now, I'm going to call it I'm a Freedom Lover. Get me out of here, which will feature interviews with people who have moved out of, out of blue states out of dominate, you know, leftist dominated states into red, freer places. So we're going to begin right now by going over to our dear friend Robert Bryce and uh, listening to what he has to say about the new regulations out of the Securities and Exchange Commission and and many many other things. So we we'll go over to that now. So now we're joined by our dear dear friend Robert Bryce, um, who is. You know, as I was writing this over the weekend, Robert, and realizing your your bio gets longer every day. He is a podcaster. He's an author. He is a documentary filmmaker. He is an energy expert. Um, and that's why I have him on today. Thank you for joining me, Robert. Happy to be with you. And now careful on that expert line. My dad said an expert's from any, anybody from out of town. So I don't know. Just, uh... <laughs> well, actually, funny enough, funny enough, I actually I looked at it this morning and I thought I wish I could find a different word to use for you because the word expert has been destroyed. Actually, it could, uh, you know, particularly with COVID, I think the word expert has been completely destroyed, but we'll get on to that. Sure. Um, how are you? I'm very well, thanks. I mean, I, I didn't think the world could get crazier. And I, well, boy, was I ever wrong. Yes, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, you know, one of the things I was going to ask you about first, before we get into talking about the SEC, was um, you we're, we've started a new feature in our podcast where we're talking to people who have left blue states to go to red states. And I thought I would start by asking you, how are you enjoying all the Californians that are moving to Austin? Oh, my Lord. It's just unbelievable. My son, uh, he's our youngest, Jacob. He's now 22. He was selling shoes. He worked in a shoe store for a little while. I didn't like it. But I said, well, so where are all these people coming from? And he said, Dad, they all come from Dallas or California. Oh, and it's like, but it's true. And, and and the city is, I mean, I've lived, Lauren and I have lived in Austin for 37 years. It's un unbelievable. Um, how many people are moving here from California. But, you know, look at what's happening. I mean, last year alone, electricity prices in California went up, uh, residential rates went up almost 12%. I mean, the, the cost of living there is going toward the moon. And yeah. energy prices are a big part of that. Yeah, yeah. And we just talked to somebody who has literally moved. She's just moved from California to Utah. And she talked exactly about that. She said that her her monthly energy bill was like something like i think was the right magda fifteen hundred dollars fifteen hundred dollars she's in utah she's paying sixty dollars she says yeah. um you know sixty dollars and change basically um for the same and for a larger home i think but i wanted to ask you let's move move on from that i wanted to ask you about this news from the securities and exchange commission so the biden commission the biden administration have found a new and innovative way of forcing their climate agenda on us Tell us what the Securities and Exchange Commission 
are proposing and what it would mean. Sure. Now, I, I will be clear, I haven't read every page or, you know, but the gist of this is of a piece with the all of the rest of this, um, uh, I mean, mess of climate and energy related policy that's being pushed by the Biden administration. And it's that through the SEC, that investors and companies will have to, re, you know, report their climate related risk. You know, and, and, and the, the key here, Anne, I think, is that this is just the latest example of the Biden administration just going off with no kind of sensibility about what is happening in the world, especially after February 24th, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. It's as though there's no not, no history exists. But it, but I'll, I'll, a brief vignette. I was talking. I was in Dallas a few weeks a few weeks ago. Ran into some family members, and they work in the foreign policy area. They're working for the federal government, and I asked them about Biden and what their energy policy was at, at the energy policy of the Biden administration. They said, Yeah, they have a lot of tactics but no strategy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's it exactly. And it's a yeah. devastating comment. But when you look at the FERC, when you look at the Keystone XL pipeline cancellation, when you look at this endless talk about electric vehicles and the rest of it with no discussion about China or Chinese minerals, metals, rare earth elements, it, they have all these things that they're doing, but there is no sensibility that makes any sense as a whole that particularly in a world where after the invasion of, of Ukraine, the world is desperate for hydrocarbons of all kinds. Yeah, and, 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 the, and the solution that the environmentalists have is, this is a great opportunity to segue away from fossil fuels. Like they literally are saying that, which proves that they definitely aren't experts. Whatever they're experts on, they're not experts on energy, that's for sure. Well, look at what uh, I just looked up the numbers. So today the at TTF, which is the Dutch trading hub, which is the, the European equivalent of our Henry hub here in the United States, which is the trading hub in, in Louisiana. The price today is $36 per million BTUs, $36 per million BTUs in here in the US. It's less than six. So what are the, what are the Europeans going to have to do? I mean, and this is just flat and just obvious. They're going to have to start drilling for oil and gas and they're going to have to get with it right damn quick. Yeah. And this is clear. And yet what uh, I, I've been saying the same thing for, you know, months, yes. I testified yes. before the Senate last in uh, Joe Manchin's committee last November. What did Europe do? They overinvested in renewables, underinvested in hydrocarbons, closed baseload plants and dependent too much on imports. Mm -hmm. And this is exactly the same policy that is being pushed by the climatistas in the United States that, you know, climate is their only issue. Well, no, it's not. Climate change is a concern. It's not our only concern. And we need to be focused on energy security and affordability. And that is not any part of in my, in my view, of what the Biden administration is proposing. Yeah, well, if you think about where, I mean, particularly, you know, and we've talked about this before with you, but I mean, where you're sitting there in Austin, where in Texas, in Texas, like the, the center of energy in the world, to most people's minds, um, people froze to death um, because of the environmental agenda and over-reliance on renewables. You know, if, if it can happen in Texas, it can happen anywhere. Texas is following the California model, and, yeah. and, and it's a broken model. And yeah. as I wrote in the Dallas Morning News last year, this is a government failure. The policymakers did not understand the fragility of the electric grid, and they, they were sold on this idea, oh, well, it's a mar you know, we'll just make a market of it. No, 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 no. Yeah. You don't mess with the electric grid. It's the most important energy network in our society, and yet they've allowed this um, huge amount 
of influx of renewables, just in the same way the California market has done. And now our grid is increasingly fragile in the same way California's is, which is, it's truly remarkable. Two states that are completely different in terms of politics, but that they have followed this same idea of, well, we'll just let the market decide. Well, no, there's some things you can't leave to the market. And this in the electric grid is one of them. Yeah, but the market, I mean, this isn't a free market in a sense exactly. because of the fact that, you know, I mean, because we believe in markets and we believe in free sure. markets. However, what's happened is that the market has been skewed and prejudiced in favor of renewables. And so it, it and so in a free in a, you know, supposedly free market situation, utility companies are obviously going to buy into renewables because of the, all these subsidies. Right. Am I am sure. I getting that right? Of course, you have the tax credits that are worth, um, in the case of wind, as much as $25 a megawatt hour. And remember, in the Build Back Better Act, this there was a push to put an extension in the Build Back Better Act that would have kept that in place for another 10 years. So you're exactly right that these tax credits, subsidies, they're driving investment that is skewing the marketplace and, and therefore, and, 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 uh, reducing the economic viability of the thermal power plants that we have to have because mm -hmm. we could cover Texas or California with wind turbines. We can't make the wind blow. Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's definitely a problem. Um, uh, I want to kind of, a couple of things I want to touch on. I want to sure. also uh, think just and ask you about this decision that the Biden administration have, you know, their decision of how to cope with the gas prices by um, releasing some of the strategic reserve of oil, uh, a million, what is it, a million, a million barrels a day. Is that what they're, that's what they're going to do? Think that's, I think that's right. Yeah. So I think America consumes something like 17 uh, million barrels a day. So this is obviously a drop in the ocean. But what are the implications of actually tapping into the reserve. I mean, I think this is kind of a, a very serious move, right? Well, it is. And I, I, I just think it's another example of lots of tactics, but no strategy. We, you know, this is this is a very temporary fix, as is this idea that, well, we're going to suspend the gasoline tax. Well, where do you make up that revenue? Mm -hmm. How are you going to refill the SPR then in a, in a few months or a few years? This was supposed to be for wartime. Well, this isn't wartime. And, you know, this isn't some major conflict that has upset in the market. It's a, mul a multitude of factors, right? After COVID, more financial discipline from the oil and gas industry because they they wasted so much and destroyed so much capital during the shale revolution russia all of these things coming together but again that you know what's the long-term plan and the reality is like it or not that if we're going to get to get through this we need more production of oil and yes. gas in the united states full stop there is no other answer yeah and the reality is that this renewable mirage the big renewable lie which is what we've been hearing over and over from the biggest ngos and and top academics in this country it's a lie and all you yeah, have to do yeah. is look at Europe and see that it was a lie. It was, a, and I sent you that article over the weekend from the Atlantic, which I thought was hilarious. Actually, I just thought I just thought it was hilarious because basically, you know, obviously they didn't say it, but the article, the summary of the article was basically, yeah, environmentalists have been wrong about everything, <laughs> you know. But obviously, they don't say that. But uh, but there, you know, we should be. I mean, I don't. I, I'd love to think that COVID and particularly what's happened with Ukraine would teach the world to be very, very skeptical of experts. But unfortunately, I actually genuinely don't think that that's going to happen. I mean, well, and, I, I don't. And you, and you sent me that piece from The New York Times and the number of times the word expert. Yes, was used I know in that article. I thought, wow, yeah. I mean, this is the the the. The, the tyranny of the experts. Well, oh, who yeah. are these people? Are they really qualified? Let me make one other quick point if I can. And uh, I, I have a podcast coming out tomorrow with John Hanekamp on Tuesday about his, his message is he's a commodities consultant, mainly in the coal industry. He said the big issue now that's looming isn't energy, it's food. 
And one of, yes. the big, one of the big issues around this idea Fertilizer. of renewables is that, oh, well, we'll just renewables. Well, no. What about natural gas derived fertilizer? And so mm -hmm. we're looking at a multi-year situation where inflation and food prices and potential famine are very real. Yeah. And that this is the crisis. And yet you can't make this work without natural gas. You cannot make it without hydrocarbons. And that is the other part of the big lie that, frankly, I'm just, frankly, you know, I'm disgusted with it. Man. I mean, I really am that we, yeah. that we need energy realism and energy humanism and we need them right darn now. Yeah. I mean, I, and by the way, and we will obviously send people uh, links to your podcast because what you're doing is so important. I mean, there's, uh, you know, there's a there's a real dearth of education when it comes to energy and comes to economics. And it's interesting. I was at a dinner actually on Saturday night with a couple of very smart people. And we actually ended up having that was exactly the conversation we ended up having was about fertilizer. And it's kind of one of those stories that people aren't talking about because people I think it reminds me of back in the day when we were doing work on Frack Nation. And remember, I remember talking to you. I think one of the biggest problems is people don't know where stuff comes from right um you know like people like you know you hear the young people talking about electricity you know like it's a like it's a source of energy you know like oh well i it's an electric car whatever and in fact actually on saturday night i ended up in a tesla and we had a anyway, a bunch of people in this Tesla and we were having this argument and the guy who had the Tesla was basically saying, well, you know, it's electricity and I can I can proudly say, you know, that um, this is all American. Everything's American here. And I said to him, slow down. I said, you need to slow down here because everything about this car is not American because the energy where where's the energy coming from? Where did the oil come from? Where did any of you know, where did any of this stuff come from? Are you sure all of this came from America? Um, and the truth is that it doesn't. And this is the one that the issue that's really worrisome to me. And I've been meaning to write about it. I've just been traveling a little too much. But, you know, the, what the European experience shows is over-reliance on Russia for hydrocarbons. Yes. What the U.S. is doing now, particularly under the Biden administration with this promotion of EVs and, and, uh, um, and wind turbines, it makes the U.S. completely dependent on the Chinese for high-strength magnets, the neodymium iron boron magnets and that go into electric vehicles that are the critical ingredient in electric, electric vehicles and in wind turbines. And a, the DOE just reported in February, China controls, I think it's 92 or 94 percent of the global marketplace for these magnets. How did we... How uh, God, I mean, I, I mean, I, f I find it really frightening, by the way, that the, the leaders, you know, and experts around the world allowed us to get into a situation where we, where we are so dependent on China. I mean, if they decided in the morning, you know, that they're not going to make any more drugs, by the way, again, it's, it's a very much the same thing as you've just said there about about the, the about the magnets. I mean, it, also, China is 97 percent, 98 percent of all the drugs for everything that we need, all the drugs for all the essential things that we need are made in China. How did we ever, uh, how could smart people, well, actually, you know, in some ways, only smart people could have done something this stupid, right? <laughs> well, I, I really, and I say this with no joy, Anne, but I think we've sleepwalked into a similar situation as the Europeans. Mm -hmm. We've sleepwalked into this idea, oh, well, it's a global market and it's going to work out. And I was, just, I was guilty of this very same thing, but the, you know, the, oh, we can just source it, you know, radio, you know, uranium fuel, we can get it from overseas, whatever. No, what we're going to see, and I, I think it's long overdue, is more retrenchment, and it's going to require more muscular government activity in industrial policy. Yeah. And that's going to be hard. It's going to be mm -hmm. a hard sell in Washington, but we need that, and particularly, we need it on the nuclear industry. We need this, we need robust government, bipartisan, decadal-long support, because the Chinese are building 46 nuclear reactors, we're building two. 
Oh God, it's it's it's, it's wild. I, I want to I want to go back for a little minute sure. about, the, about the fertilizer because I just wanted to, if you have any kind of data on that of how bad the situation is. So so fertilizer is dependent is made using um using obviously very dependent on natural gas. Right. Um, what can, can you give us a kind of a sense of the magnitude of this, um, if you can at all? Well, I, I wish I could give you chapter and verse on the on the on the fertilizer fronts. I, I was in Indiana a few months ago and talking to a farmer there about, and he was saying, you know, fertilizer delivered to his farm gate had more than doubled in price. Yeah. And urea the same. Yeah. And he said he couldn't even get a lot of uh, the herbicides that he had been trying to get and, and just couldn't get them. Yeah. So what what does this mean then? It means potentially lower yields. Mm -hmm. Well, and but further, what one of the things, the interesting things John Hanekamp said is that something like 30% of the grain that is exported out of Ukraine goes to Africa. Well, <sighs> And and now the Ukrainians, they may not be able to plant this year, right? The farmers, because of all the war, there's no planting going on. So it's not just about fertilizer. It's about the growth. Yes. It's about the, the farming cycle and about the exports of, out of the port of Mariupol and, and all of these things coming together yeah. that are critical to the global food supply and fertilizer is a key part of it. But I, I, again, to just repeat what I said, you cannot make fertilizer at scale. Remember before this, we relied on bat guano and bird guano. That was the key fertilizer and that this was the way the, the world's farmers made their crops, you know, produce more. Now it's the Haber-Bosch process and natural gas, and that is irreplaceable. How quickly, so this, is kind of, this answers maybe two questions. How quickly could production in the United States be ramped up to cope with, um, with the demand? How, how quickly could that happen? Now you're talking about fertilizer or energy or, or I'm talking I'm talking or? about yeah I'm talking about fossil fuel production by the way which obviously would then go on to you know sure. onto natural gas etc Sure well, it's a challenge. And because remember, the industry came off of this, you know, growth cycle and, you know, running uh, what a 1500 more than something like that. Uh, I don't know the exact count of that number of drilling rigs. Now we're at half that number. And we don't have and the, the one of the big challenges is labor. I've heard this over and over from people in the oil and gas industry that they don't have enough roughnecks, enough tool pushers, enough roust roustabouts to, to man all of the crew, the, 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 the equipment that they have. They need qualified truck drivers. All of these things are running into labor shortages as well as increased prices and in some cases uh, shortages of things like, you know, tubular steel products and other things that they need to do their business. So it's a it's a squeeze in in nearly every part of the industry and it's not going to be resolved quickly you didn't ask this but the other question is well how quickly could the europeans ramp up yes I mean, so funny quickly, i was just thinking about that how, yeah exactly how quickly well, would, they would have would, to well they would have to decide i mean obviously one of the problems in, in europe is that they would have to decide that they would produce that they would start producing right. fossil fuels i mean you know i mean in ireland for example I, I, you, i'm sure you probably know this but i mean there's an opportunity in ireland there's a there's a fracking opportunity in ireland and bizarrely a bit like here which i just think is almost you know my mother used to talk about the hand of god it's kind of weird because you know i remember back in the day when we used to look at that great shale map of where the shale opportunities in the united states were it was almost weird that it was almost geographically in places that really needed the economic stimulus, like some, so the Central Valley in California, poorer parts of upstate New York, in places uh, in, in Ohio and in Pennsylvania, et cetera, et cetera. Same thing in Ireland, very bizarre. In Ireland, the big opportunity is in a county called Leitrim, which I don't want to be too flippant, but basically is most famous for producing depression and alcoholism. And they decided, no, we're not going to do this. We're not going to go ahead with this. Um, so yes, so I mean, obviously there was massive opportunities in in Europe, but 
Are they going to do it? Are they going to do it? But they have to repeal the frack bans first. Yes. Yeah. They have to say, no, we, we got it wrong. And yeah. then, and then is there going to be the social acceptability for drill rigs in your neighborhood? And then what about the frack sand trucks? And what about the, you know, all of the tra truck traffic that's going to be. Well, required. this is I mean, where, this is and this is where, you know, the damage done by misinformation from yeah. the likes, particularly of Josh Fox with the, the documentary Gasland, which was nominated for an Oscar nominated for whatever, right. Which was full of, absolute lies uh, and it did and obviously you know as we know the fracking the anti-fracking movement in europe was paid for by putin and i i'm, I'm quoting um, obviously i'm quoting hillary clinton here um you know she's the one who told us that that that's who paid for all of this anti-fracking uh, information but and was money well spent I mean, you, oh, look they at spent, from, yes. you look at it from Putin's standpoint and he set it up and just laid the trap perfectly. He must be so amused. He must be so amused. I, I actually made the point. I said at this dinner on, on Saturday night, I said to some of these guys, I said, you know, uh, environmentalists caused the war in Ukraine. And uh, people agreed with me. <laughs> I mean, it may sound very extreme, but it certainly made it, it made it possible. It made it, I mean, if, if Europe, it, it opened the door and, yeah. and you see what, and I had a piece in the wall street journal a few weeks ago, pointing this out that California has followed the European model almost to a T right. Yeah. Closing their baseload plants, over investing in renewables, under investing in hydrocarbons and re relying too much on imports. And now their, their energy costs are going toward the moon. And this is highly regressive. I mean, we can talk about these other things and, but you know, for the poor and the middle class, this is just terrible. I mean, yeah. it's just you add all the other inflationary aspects into this soaring cost of electricity, soaring cost of motor fuel, soaring cost of food. This is all terrible for them. There's no yeah. upside to any of this for them. And yet that is never discussed by the likes of the Sierra Club and the Natural Resources Defense Council and all of these other groups that are getting not tens even, but hundreds of millions of dollars from some of the richest people in America. Yeah. To and actually, it makes me continue pushing their anti-nuclear, anti-hydrocarbon agenda. It makes me think when you say that, it makes me think of there's a moment, I think, in one of your documentaries There's a really beautiful, powerful moment in, in one of them where you are remind me of where you are. And you were talking to a very, very poor man talking about his energy prices. Was that was that in India? Were you in India? Where was that? Well, I think we might have been in India where the village was invaded by elephants at night because they didn't have lights. I mean, their, yeah. their personal safety was at risk, not, you know, because they, you know, the, the wildlife was just running through the village, but villages with lights didn't have that problem. Yeah. But this is the other big issue. And that we, you know, we talk about what's happening here in the US and around the world, you know, and but we focus on, oh, climate change, and we're going to solve it ourselves. And the rest of the world is going to, you know, follow us. Four out of 10 people in the world today use less electricity than an average kitchen refrigerator in the United States. Stop Four again. I want to stop again. Say that again, because this I remember sure. this is something that you've talked about. Your refrigerator, I think is how you put it. Your yeah. refrigerator in your house in Austin uses. Go on ahead. A thousand kilowatt hours uh, per year. Now, this is my old refrigerator. I've replaced <laughs> it since then, but okay. it was using a thousand kilowatt hours per year. 3.3 billion people roughly in the world today are living in places where electricity consumption is less than a thousand kilowatt hours per capita per year. So this idea of climate change, it's a Western and, and, and the energy transition rather. This idea yes. about the energy transition, it's a Western conceit. This idea that, oh, we're going to change, we're going to stop climate change mitigation. We have to do all this, spend all this money on, not in a world where you have not just a few million people, but four out of 10 people, roughly 3.3 billion people in the world living in dire electricity poverty. There may be concerned about climate change, but it is not their first concern. No. 
and 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 then uh, you know again i mean i just despair at all these experts talking and and, and so many governments talking about net zero as a as a some as a goal to be achieved you know and great i mean as you say like whatever climate change sometime whatever but right now i mean the idea that you know that that is being and they're putting in these crazy crazy dates at which they're going to achieve this and i'm i'm i just love to know who is giving them the information that they think that this can be achieved on at any level of solar panels or windmills well, and that, and that's just it. And I was just talking to a friend of mine who lives in California, and he and I were talking about the same thing. And his, his point was, show me the plan. Yeah. Show me where you're going to do this and do it slowly. And I said, I joke, yeah. <laughs> do it and yeah. do it and do it slowly because I'm from Oklahoma. Yeah, yeah. Give but it to me. What, yeah, let's do it step by step. Explain it to yeah. me here now. Yeah. Go, go slow. Don't use any big words. <laughs> but but you're not going to read about this in The New York Times or The Washington Post or the National Public. You won't read about it in National Public Radio. And I, I wrote a piece in Quillette a few weeks ago. Some of this journalism around renewables in rural America, some of the worst journalism I've ever seen. I mean, just terrible. I mean, yeah. execrable, just yeah. awful, mm -hmm. where they don't consider any of the concerns of rural people, property values, landscapes, you know, view sheds, uh, noise issues. In fact, it was just, a, I think it was on Saturday, that the town of Lovell, Maine, a little town, they had a referendum in the town. They voted 80% against a large-scale uh, solar project that was slated to be built in their town. Oh, this is in, now you're actually putting a finger on something that I saw over the weekend and thought, God, I must ask Robert about this because I went on your website. And again, we're going to put that up in the show notes and um, we'll put that up on the screen right now. What is your website again, Robert? RobertBryce.com. Robert Bryce, and people should go there for all things Robert Bryce. Um, and it'll also give you a portal into where to find the podcast and all that kind of stuff. And, and everything that Robert has is just fabulous and extremely well researched. But one thing that I saw that you have there and I thought, oh my God, this is an interesting resource. So you have a database and please talk me through it you have a database of local am i correct in saying local um decisions to um push back against renewables am i putting that am i expressing sure. that correctly yes you got it right so it's the renewable rejection database rejection and been, database <clears throat> right go and for I've it been, i've been collecting it since 2015 and what's fascinating about this and I'm, i've been a reporter my whole career and i've never had a real job right this is what i do <laughs> yes um and the wind industry, the solar, never questioned any of the numbers in my database, never challenged any of it. But the punchline is this. Since 2015, there have been 325, at minimum, 325 communities from Maine to Hawaii that have rejected or restricted wind projects. The New York Times won't report on this. I, had, I spent an hour on a Zoom call with Julia Simon, an NPR reporter, talking her through this. She didn't report any of it, didn't include any of this in her in her reporting. Oh, because it wasn't what she wasn't, wasn't she wasn't looking for that Robert it's so incredibly you know? dishonest and what's and what has happened more recently and I had a piece in Forbes about this just a couple of days ago Mid-American Energy one of the biggest utilities in America sued Madison County Iowa to force them to accept more wind turbines forced them and so this is the great green hope this is the great uh, you know environmentally friendly technology well if it's so great why are you forcing a county why are you, why are you suing a county to force them to accept it. Yeah. So, but anyway, yes, the renewable rejection database, I've started building up uh, an additional data regarding solar rejections, because what's interesting to me is that, you know, for years, it was the wind industry that was facing a lot of friction. But now as big solar is being pushed out, you're seeing a very similar backlash against these large scale solar projects, which will cover hundreds of acres. And the locals are saying, we don't want this. Yeah, you had, a, I mean, God, I could talk to you forever, Robert. I mean, you had a great thing a few years ago, I just remembered where you had done the math on how much land it would take 
solar panel wise to power I can't remember but I remember to, my memory was something like you'd have to cover Texas or cover California completely give me give me some sense of that uh, sure. scale I, I haven't I haven't done the the <clears throat> I could do it I just haven't done it but I've done the the calculations for wind and I've done it in many of my presentations over the last few months yes. um and but uh, two different sources one from Harvard and the other from Václav Smil who's one of the most widely regarded very highly regarded energy writers they both calculated that to meet existing electricity demand in the US existing electricity demand not to forget about future electric vehicles and electrify everything and the rest of it but 4000 terawatt hours uh, uh, per year with wind turbines you need a land area twice the size of the state of California and you can't build you can't build wind turbines in California you live in California yeah yeah it was oh, yeah. just, it was, it was just yeah. a few weeks ago that the bureau of land management not a local jurisdiction the bureau of land management rejected a wind project that was proposed for northwest of Sacramento so this idea oh we're going to set aside all this land even if it's you know we use half wind turbines well that's still one California well why does that matter because you can't build wind turbines in California so yes. oh, we're just going to put it out there and fly over country. Well, those people out there in flyover country don't want your stuff either. Yeah, yeah. Oh God, I mean, it's it's it's. I mean, it's, it's just extraordinary. Um, we're living in a dangerous time, Anne, and I don't yeah. say that with any relish. No, I know. But the level no, it's of not the, nice being right about everything. I, I mean, yeah, and we and were you right were right about, yeah. and you were right in fraction about Putin and the anti-gas push. Yeah. But 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 the 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 propaganda, and I think yes. that's the right word. The propaganda that is being promoted by some of the biggest media outlets in this country is dangerous when it comes to the issue of energy. And I would say that the Biden administration is guilty as well. And again, I don't use that word loosely. But I understand. What they're doing is propaganda. No, no. You know, I'm, by the way, you know, I wish, you know what I wish you'd done, by the way, and, and maybe do this uh, in the future, you know, when you're being interviewed, I, and I, 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 I say this to everyone, and I haven't actually, I, I haven't needed to do it myself because the mainstream media don't interview me that often. But I think one of the things that people like ourselves should do is, if someone like that interviews us, we should record the whole thing. And then when they do, you know, release the edited portion, you mm. know, we should release the whole thing and say, it's really weird because she didn't mention, like when you're talking about the NPR yeah. journalist, you know, you you dropped this incredible story on her, this 325 um, individual, you know, local areas that had rejected um, renewables. I mean, that's a story. That's a headline. That's really interesting news. And that's sure. something that journalists, as you said, like journalists should be reporting on this and the journalism that goes around. And that's why I sent you the piece from the Atlantic because I just thought the guy writing in the Atlantic, by the way, you know, I looked at his bio and he's like the planet you know he writes about the planet for the atlantic you know he's like the planet's expert right and you know and he and he his article was basically well you know we were wrong about everything but whatever you know but he, he doesn't say they were wrong he said that their the environmental agenda is out uh, outdated and i'm like right that's yeah. an interesting phrase to use outdated no it's not outdated it's wrong it was wrong a decade ago and, and and two decades ago and it's wrong today and more wrong you know and by the day um as it and, as it continues and, and unfortunately they have <clears throat> the biden administration is under the thrall of all of this i mean look at one of the i've written about this as well recently in forbes look at the, what is happening at the nuclear regulatory commission this agency is adamantly anti-nuclear. They've oh, made gosh, that yeah. clear. Yeah. I mean, in, in, in January, they poured out an application from Oklo uh, Power. They wanted a permit for a one and a half megawatt reactor. That's a tiny reactor. That happened just a couple of weeks after the Chinese started a high temperature gas reactor in Shandong province, which is cutting edge of cutting edge. 
And here we are, we can't even get a permit for a, a tiny reactor. Yeah. And then a few weeks later, they, they rescinded the license extensions that were granted under the Trump administration to two nuclear plants, Peach Bottom in Pennsylvania and Turkey Point in Florida. I mean, how we, we live in a banana republic now where there, there's no rule of law and the bureaucrats, once the administration changes, can simply say, oh, never mind. We don't we don't mean it. I mean, if we're serious about reducing emissions, if we're serious about saving landscapes, we need to be adamantly pursuing nuclear yes. hammer and tongs. And yeah. yet the, the, the Biden administration and his state of the union, President Biden did not use the word nuclear one time. Oh, gosh. They, they don't care. They don't, they're not interested. We're coming to the end of this interview. Is there any possibility, Robert, that you could t tell us anything, that any good news at all? <laughs> is there any good news at all out there? I mean, obviously, America, I mean, the good news in America is that we have all this amazing opportunity. We have all this amazing, um, amazing fossil fuels, including coal, by the way. I think coal is, uh, has not seen its last days yet. Um, it, it and it I think coal, coal and use was up 17% last year in the US. Yeah. The Chinese did oh my 300 God. million yeah. tons. My father used to say he used to sell um, home heating products. And I remember he used to always, and I, it just stayed in my mind. He used to talk about coal, that nothing would heat a house like coal. The power of it, that the power of the energy of it. And of course, it's true. You know, if you put a log fire down, it's all very pretty. It's all great and everything. But there's no great powerful, like you put yeah. a coal fire down, you pull your chair back. You know, yeah. and I, you know, we have that sense where because because it's got this amazing, amazing energy, and uh, I do believe in God, and it's like you know that coal wasn't there, it's not it's not there accidentally, it's there for us to use for the betterment of mankind, and unfortunately, uh, environmentalists think leave it in the ground leave that's their thing leave it in the ground leave the coal in the ground leave the oil in the ground leave the natural gas in the ground um and meanwhile the people on the surface of the ground will freeze to death but meanwhile they don't say leave the neodymium and the iron and the boron and the dysprosium in the ground they're assuming that oh, we're just going to magically produce all of these metals and minerals that are needed for their fantasy land around renewables i mean that's why i say it's a dangerous time but I'm an optimist, Dan. I'm, you know, uh, hopelessly yes, so. I'm I know you are. <laughs> as Molly Ivan said, optimistic to the point of idiocy. <laughs> I love it. Are, this is self-correcting. I mean, and what we're going to see in the energy field, I think, is we're, we'll, you know, the cure to high, the old saw about the cure to high prices is high price is high prices, and the cure for low prices is low prices. I, I, I think, you know, if God willing and the creek don't rise, the, the November elections are going to be an inflection point in American politics, because yes. I think that the, the Democratic Party and they have overreached and they have made so many mistakes, particularly on the energy front, that I think the voters have seen this. And and that's why you see all this SPR and talk about gas tax holidays and the rest, because the Democrats are scared out of yes. their minds yes. yeah. about high gasoline prices, because the consumer sits there and sits there at the pump and looks at it for three, four minutes yeah why is this costing me five dollars i was I, funny i was writing notes and questions for you and i was saying you know and you know i was going to say something about you know and the the the, the, the experience of the consumer buying gas and i was thinking yeah take out take out the word consumer the voter buying gas the voter who is buying gas and who's going to remember um ex and remember in november so november is going to be very interesting robert thank you so much for your time today v i always love to talk to you about these issues because you were just a fund of knowledge and um and a great friend to this podcast and to us and well, thank long, you, long may it continue and magda of course is going to be moving into your neck of the woods so hopefully you'll you'll be catching up with her when she's down there good well always right. great to see you and give uh, give phil my regards i will all right thanks okay. so much robert bye bye god bless
I could honestly talk to Robert Bryce forever. I mean, what a fund of knowledge. I mean, he's an extra. I mean, we are so lucky to be able to phone him up at any time and get him to come on the, on our podcast. We're very, very lucky. And anyone who wants to follow and find out information about energy, all things energy, please do go to Robert Bryce. So it's robertbryce.com is his website. And from the website, you'll find all the other things um, about, about him. I wanted to bring you a story, though, right now about... Um, you know, how these, so, so the New York Times and LA Times, I mean, you know, and Robert mentioned a little bit about how awful mainstream media is right now. And, it, it, you know, it, 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 it's, sho- it's really shocking to read now in the LA Times, in the New York Times, among their Pulitzer Prize winning journalists, you know, the fact, you know, these extraordinary news stories that they're breaking at this point, like, for example, so this is from the LA Times, you know, where they talk about nearly half of LAUSD students, the LA, LAUSD school district, I think I'm correct in saying, is the largest school district in America. So it's a very, very significantly large um, population of young people there. Nearly half of them have been chronically absent this year. And that's what the LA Times are reporting. This is in 2022. Nearly half of Los Angeles Unified students, more than 200 thousand students have been what's known as chronically absent from school this year, which I'm reading from the LA Times, meaning they've they've missed at least 9% of the academic year, according to the data provided to the LA Times. Um, This is, I mean, the connection, by the way, between absenteeism among young people and all kinds of really awful things happening to them in their lives is is extremely well established. The idea that this is the, the idea that this wasn't predictable is beyond me. The idea that during COVID, when all the brilliant experts, as we had a little conversation with Robert about that earlier, about this word experts, and it's interesting, you know, the LA Times in this very article quote an expert, and it's amazing, you know, they get an expert to weigh in on this situation, you know, um, about this absenteeism. You know, um, Erica Peterson is the person that they asked to speak to in the interview. She's and she, Erica Peterson, is a national education education manager for School Innovations and Achievement, a company that works with districts to track and improve attendance, right? This is what she's apparently an expert on, attendance. And here's the quote from Erica. We thought we were going to go back to normal this year, and it just hasn't happened at all. And she went on, by the way, to say, you know, she went, almost all of the students are one full year behind academically as a result of excessive absences, you know. And she goes on to say, it's going to take an awful long time to right the ship. I'll tell you one thing that Eric is an expert on. She's certainly an expert on trite expressions and cliches. But her expertise in relation to absenteeism in schools, you know, this is, this is the class of expert that is being paid enormous sums of money by taxpayers to be really useless at their jobs. The idea that she didn't see this coming when any normal person could have seen this coming because of the disruption. Not the disruption caused by COVID, the disruption caused by the uh, the government's idea of how to react to COVID. And one of their big ideas, one of their brilliant ideas was to close down schools and send children home to learn um, remotely. And that does not work. And, you know, you really didn't need to be an expert on anything to know that that wouldn't work. But this is a this is an awful, this is like a car wreck in slow motion that we're all going to be watching with these children 
And just another paragraph from the story. A statewide analysis in, ja- in January prepared at the request of whatever the California Department of Education so showed that nearly 30% of students in a sample of districts representing more than 320,000. So this is statewide. So first of all, we were looking at LAUSD, but among the whole state of California, more than 320,000 students were chronically absent this school year. 30% of the students were chronically absent. And I think we know, I mean, and it's very obvious that the highest percentage of those children who are absenting themselves from schools are from poorer situations where they don't have the supports that, you know, the rich people will survive all of this because they can bring in tutors, they can, t- you know, they can take time off work, they can do whatever to survive this. But for poorer families, needing the support of, of the school and needing, and children needing an environment to go to, particularly children out of uh, unsafe homes, to be able to go to a school where there'd be some adult who would care enough about them to notice if they were in trouble, to have taken that away from hundreds and hundreds of thousands of students for over a year is unconscionable and had nothing to do with public health and everything to do with labour unions and teachers unions and teachers who didn't want to work. And it's it's extraordinary. But, you know, we're going to see more and more of these stories um, going forward. And it's very, it's very, very depressing to read. And plenty of people, I know plenty of you listening to this, know of children who have suffered irreparable damage from what's happened. Um, it's just it's it's just horrific, um, and we hope and pray that that they will you know that they will survive. But this is this is a historic um, and catastrophic disaster, and it wasn't the COVID wasn't a disaster. It was the reaction to COVID. It was what governments decided to do without doing any kind of cost benefit analysis or deciding what if we do this what. What else will happen and what cost will that be in terms of human misery? And they didn't do that. They just decided, you know, to unilaterally decide to just, you know, close. Let's close everything down and send everyone home. And, you know, it doesn't work. And I'm, I'm really hoping that maybe people will have learned from that. Now, that's all very depressing. So I want to move away from that as quickly as possible and go to something really delightful. And I don't have a recipe this week. Sorry about that. Um, missing film. So I don't have my cameraman over the weekend to, to film me. But honestly, we've been so busy with everything and you'll understand understand a lot more about that very, very soon. Um, so I didn't get to do any nice cooking, but um, I would recommend to you to keep on cooking. Um, and thank you for all the really nice notes that you've sent. We really appreciate it. Please keep them coming. But right now we want to go over to an interview we did a little bit earlier with a very, very lovely friend of ours, Elizabeth Prescott, who moved out of Los Angeles to Southern Utah. Let's go over to that now and hear how she got on and why she left L.A. So we're now joined by my dear friend, Elizabeth Prescott, who is the first guest in what we're describing, a new section we're describing in our podcast called, I'm a freedom lover, get me out of here. So wonderful to see you. And I, I the, the, my only regret in leaving where I left is a, a, a small handful of friends uh, who also haven't left, who haven't left yet. <laughs> I say yet. Um, so I'm from Los Angeles. I'm third generation Cal- Southern California, and very specifically, oh, I hate to say entertainment industry, but uh, coming from pioneers of sound engineering, and for me, it was a lot of recording, film, and television session work, and stage, and things like that. So my entire life, I expected to stay there, you know, back and forth to New York and other places. Uh, but I was so rooted, and I, I said I was in my house for 25 years, 
And I said, I, oh, I would never, I could, I could never leave here. I'd never leave here. And as things got worse and worse, and I don't have to tell anyone what all that is, uh, it really became very stressful. And people became, I don't want to say all people, but the, you know, the people yelling at you from across the street outside in the sun because you're not wearing your mask on your walk. And uh, COVID really kind of put a, an extra pressure on so many of us to just say, uh, what am I staying here for? I can't work. I can't go to the gym. In the meantime, my dear father had been diagnosed with inoperable cancer and I was back and forth to Utah where they moved in uh, 2013, Southwest Utah, St. George, which is just a beautiful place. Unfortunately, the first time I stepped out of the car here, it was 10 o'clock at night in the middle of August and it was about 100 degrees and I said, heck no, that's not happening. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Can't move here. Uh, but it that was just a, a bad start, unfortunately. But I, I loved the people here. I gradually over the years kind of got to know things a little better. And uh, it's there's just a culture of kindness in general that permeates. Not everyone is LDS or Mormon, uh, depending on your verbiage. Um, but there seems to be I think it, it doesn't hurt. It helps a lot that that's a big part of the community. And um, that reminds me, that reminds me, they did a South Park episode and actually, you know, and it was, you know, I don't know if you know this, they did a South Park episode, you know, making fun, by the way, of the LDS church and they make fun and they make fun and they make fun about the hat and all this. They made fun. And at the end, though, at the end, which I thought was really good at the end, they basically said, yeah, whatever about the hats and the strange things, you really want these people to be your neighbors. That's it. That's it. Whatever about the hats doesn't matter. You want these people to be neighbors. I always struck with me because any Mormons I've ever met, I've always thought, God, I wish I lived next door to them. Uh, that, that's it. And I don't literally, but they're, it's, it's, it's pervasive. And of course, it's a wide continuum with, as within any faith uh, in terms of observance and level of all of those things. But I figure anyone who spends that much time in church thinking about and working on their character, uh, fine by me. And the way that they raise the children are amazing. Uh, so anyway, I, I just back and forth and then COVID, the shutdown happened and yeah. I was looking back through pictures and it was just interesting. I was going back and forth for, for my dad's chemo every three weeks and then I was here uh, it, and then I was here and I was here and my sister was stuck here with me in this little casita. But we really grew to get to know the place in, in the sense of really living here rather than staying for a few days. And that was a huge blessing because I realized I do love it here. I could love it here. I could really love living here. And uh, I started to view my home when I would go back to my house in yes. Sherman Oaks. Uh, I, would, I started to feel like it was this lovely stateroom on the Titanic. Uh, and I'd put so much money into this stateroom. Yes. And my yes. entire life and career was invested in this. And yet it's going to the bottom of the ocean and the things that I'd see on next door of, I don't, this is a word I'd never heard as, as a verb, but someone posting that, um, one of the homeless people had diarrheaed on his gate oh, to God. get into his house, into his condo. And it's like, wow. Okay. And he was so mad because it wasn't like an accident. This was like a hostile act. So I was seeing more of that kind of barbarism and just animal behavior and people and people just things I never 
can unsee. Yeah. South of the boulevard, around the boulevard, you know, nice neighborhood. That's it. Put it on on the market. And my dear friend, Mary helped me sell it like that. It was just a, an amazing process. And she just was like, I'll do, I'll do anything to help you get out of here. And they're hopefully leaving soon too. I know, you know, Mary. Yeah, exactly. Funny. I was just thinking about her. So that's, I mean, I, I, there's so much to unpack here, but are you, you're kind of saying in a way COVID broke you kind of COVID really brought everything to a head. It kind of concentrated the stuff that you were already somehow aware of. I'm, yeah. Am I, am I just not putting words into your mouth? Absolutely. There absolutely. And it, and it forced me to discover that I could live somewhere else, that I could let go of my house. And I had, was so attached, been in my family Beautiful for home. years yeah. and all those things. Thank you. And just, I just, I didn't, I thought I had much more of an emotional attachment to it than I, than I actually did. I didn't even go visit it when we went back to visit family. I didn't even go see it. It's like, ah. Eh. It's, it's, it's the past and that pushing to get me here and, and being close to my family. I wasn't going to be away from my father. I didn't want to get stuck in California away from my father. So I just made the choice and got rid of it. And it was, um, it was just amazing timing and, and finding a place though. So that first night of it being a hundred degrees at 10 o'clock at night, uh, had someone told me that there was a place a half an hour away that was, a higher altitude and beautiful and had green and trees and its own aquifer and all of these things, I would have moved a long time ago. So there are places and my, my, you know, to sort of skip ahead, if I had any thoughts to people or words of caution, if they're thinking of moving somewhere, go there at the worst time of year. I know Florida in the spring and winter, lovely. <laughs> Idaho in and August. Montana in, yes. in, in summer, lovely so that's not the time you can scout places then but make sure you i would say stay for a month if you can uh at the somewhere. worst time yeah at the I worst think one of the time things i think one of the things that will be a feature when we're doing this particular segment on the podcast is that everywhere except for california has a thing called weather um, <laughs> yeah. and you know it's what variation on the weather so you've now been there elizabeth through the seasons right you've done a full oh yeah year. oh yeah it's been a full year and a half uh of actually being a legal resident here and uh i don't i know i don't have to tell people how if you sell anything in southern california the equivalent was i could buy a, a nicer house here and four and a half acres of land <laughs> Okay. where I'm going to be building. So. so what have you, you, so you, yeah, so you sold in California, you bought a home and where are you? Tell, tell us geographically, we'll put up a map so that people, because I think I want to do this for the whole country and I want people to encourage people to write to us and get in touch if they want to tell their story of how they definitely. Escaped. And our idea basically is to do people who have escaped from a blue place. I mean, a lot of people mm -hmm. will be from California, but basically any blue place. I've got a friend next week coming on who's going to talk about moving out of Albuquerque, New Mexico to Lubbock, oh. Texas. But, you know, um, where, tell us where you are. Let's have a look at the map. In so a way this here. is about, yeah. if you head out the 15 uh, to Vegas and then keep on going, uh, it's about 100 miles north of Las Vegas, oh, right yeah. off the 15. Okay, and, so quite um, close to Vegas then. So you really have Vegas as a kind of a, you know, that's where you go if you need some music or you want to have a good night an out. Or in an international airport. It's, you oh, know, yeah. it's it's not a big deal. We've tried shuttles and things, but it doesn't really make sense. The the it's you And, and you're going, 
it's not like you're going through Los Angeles to get to LAX. You're going through, there's a beautiful gorge that you drive through either at the beginning or end of that trip, but it's mostly really open stretches and two lane highway. And, um, it's just nice. It's just really nice. Oh, you just mentioned something that I kind of want to bring attention to because I know you've sent us some video and we're going to be showing that video right now. So okay. basically describe to us the scenery that's kind of your everyday sort of scenery there. Well, we in so in St. George and I'm specifically in Sun River, which is a, a 55 and old, older community. I turned 55 the day that my house the month that my house was listed. So that was, again, huge <laughs> right. blessing. The timing yeah, of that go. was like not lost on me that I could actually buy a house a half a mile from my parents uh, because they'd moved into this community. And it's really wonderful. We've got about 3,000 people, I believe, or maybe 3,000 homes. A little fuzzy on the math, but okay. it looks, you can make fun of it if you drive around because you'd say, well, every house looks the same. Yes, it's clean, it's tidy, it's quiet. There isn't the battle of the leaf blowers. I, If I hear them at all, it's 30 seconds a week. It's all done at once and it's done. And, and just to, and on that very point, Elizabeth, I have literally gone next door to say to the leaf blower guy who's been blasting for the last two hours, I said to him, <laughs> could you, do you mind? Could you stop? Because my friend is just going to, I'm just going to record an interview with my friend. So actually that's very funny. So you've got, you, yeah. So you've got this lovely peace and quiet and then you've got these kind so of quiet. scenery is magnificent that you sent us. It is, you know what? It's the sky and the mountains and the geology. This was such a, a geologically violent place. However many hundreds, I don't know. Thousand. I'm not a geologist, That's but right. yeah. many, 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 Long many time eons. Ago. Let's go with eons ago. We'll go with eons. Eons. Yeah, there was like this was an ocean bed. So there, and then this disruption and then glaciers. So the the you have Zion, you know, less than an hour away. You have uh, Snow Canyon, which is much redder than it sounds. But when the snow is on it, it's just you can understand why people of faith said, "Oh yeah, no, this is it." When they saw this place, it is so <laughs> inspiring, so beautiful. Uh, so the, the, it is high desert. So technically it's Mojave desert. So there are, there is green, there's plenty of green, uh, especially in the older parts of the city. Um, water is a bit of an issue. So I warn anyone, I don't want to be, you know, it's, it's heaven on earth, but there are real problems like there are going to be with anywhere in the Southwest. So I worry about that as it's growing so quickly. We've got, uh, something, I think it's around 90,000 is the population here now, maybe close to a hundred thousand. Uh, and what's interesting, major medical, fabulous major medical, uh, and that was part of why it was chosen. So I think this is a great place to share with people because it wasn't, we didn't just happen upon it. It was about 10 years of research by my parents. The topography and the, and the, what it looks like once you're up a little bit higher, there's Pine Valley Mountain, which you see in almost every picture I sent to you. It's just something else. So up there it's cooler and some people will have little cabins and stay up there in the summer, real pine trees. Uh, Pinion Hills is where I'm building and that's about a half an hour from here about 20 minutes from town. So, and it's funny because it's 20 minutes from town and people go, Oh, that's so far, but it's, it's no one else on the road virtually. Yeah. And you're oh, looking yeah. at the most stunning scenery. Your jaw is just on the floor, the whole drive up and back. It's just, it's stunning. And the sky, it just feels bigger here. Yeah. So very so dramatic. What, so, you know, and I think this is a good thing to ask people because I think it's like, what do you miss? Like, what do you miss about California other than the weather? 
Is there only anything? the people? And I, I, honestly, and I don't even really, I thought I'm three generations of milk fed veal in California, Southern California. I am so softened in terms of weather and so intolerant to the slightest little, you really do get used to it. You, you really do adjust. Uh, and, and here's the other thing I know I've heard you talk about, uh, the co energy costs and, and fractionation and, uh, what a big deal that is when energy heating and cooling costs go up. I was paying in Sherman Oaks, gosh, it seemed like $1,500 a month. Uh, and I know neighbors who were certainly paying more. I was being uncomfortable a lot of that to do it here. It's, I, I don't even look at the, it's like $60. It's so much cheaper because at least for now, things are locally so, uh, sourced yeah. or however you yeah. want to describe it. It's, it's, it's They're getting it from, I believe, clean coal and other things that are <laughs> local. So it's so much less expensive. Um, so you can afford to keep your house comfortable, but I, for weeks we haven't used anything heat or heat or air conditioning. And I know it's spring, but, um, it's fine. And then there are people who have their RVs that will go up to star Valley, uh, where it's cool for, for the roughest two months of the summer. But I really, you, when you have then a perfect day, oh, as yeah. opposed to kind of every day was kind of the same and pretty smoggy and hopefully you didn't have fire blowing in smoke and correct. I actually, I, I love it. I didn't think I would, and I absolutely love it. I don't, I don't even mind when it's oh hot. Hey, stay inside. I'm so happy for you. I, I actually thought that you might have a list of kind of like, you know, because people say things like, I don't know, arugula, or that the local food isn't quite up to the <laughs> California standards, but you're not even mentioning food or anything like that. Um, I can't find someone to do a good job on my hair, but that doesn't mean okay. that they don't exist here. <laughs> so <laughs> cut my own hair, stop coloring it. It's just, it's like, it's not worth it. I will say though, instead of it being $300 with a tip, it's $60 with a tip. Oh my God. So yeah. things are so much more affordable here. And that's a huge uh, thing. I mean, I, yeah, that's a is. huge thing for people. You know, it's, there's a freedom in that just because, I mean, obviously I'm calling this section, you know, that, you know, you want to get to somewhere freer. There's a freedom in also yeah. having more money in your pocket and not worrying all the time about how you're going to pay for stuff. So that's, a, that's another reason to, to love, to love leaving California where, where everything, as you say, has gone. I mean, you, you know, you've mentioned a few of the things about California. You mentioned sort of the homeless. You talked about people shouting across the street um, during COVID and saying, you know, and I've, we've all experienced mm -hmm. that kind of thing. What, what else about California drove you nuts? Uh, well, certainly taxes. Uh, certainly, uh, you know, unemployment, even though I had had these skills, more and more there became social limitations and uh, I remember I lost a lot of students during a certain election, not even that one, the one before, right. because, just because <laughs> when people asked me, would you, would you join our effort? And it's like, well, I, I appreciate you doing that and good for you, your civic involvement. That's not where my heart is. Yeah, we can see where your heart is actually in the background there in your picture. I think, am I correct in saying we have a, we have a Trump mug in the background there? Is that correct? We do. It was, <laughs> and it was, my, it was my dad's and my mom just always had it turned around just so other people wouldn't see it. And it was like, you don't have to do that here. Oh, I love that. And by the way, I, I, I did a, a, a stand-up. I've, I've, I've become a stand-up comedian since I've I last heard. saw you. So basically my last, one of my last efforts was, and I think you'll find this funny, was I said that I had a great business idea which was this pack that I would create and I would, I would go to, you know, I'm going to become a gazillionaire with this. And it's a pack that you would buy or you would give as a gift to somebody who's leaving California and it'll be what they need to bring to the next place. And so what they need to do, like the minute they arrive, they have to put out 
you know, a let's go Brandon flag. <laughs> and they had to put out like Trump stuff and put out the American flag and all this kind of, and I had this kind of like, the, you know, and it was kind of obviously a joke, but I do think, um, and I know this from people that are, you know, because one of the things that can happen when you go from a blue state, sorry, from a red, sorry, from a blue state to a red state is that the red state people, the freedom loving people will be a little scared at uh-huh. first because they think, oh, God, she's come from California. They can see your number plates and they're thinking, oh my God, we got a Californian. And their initial reaction to that may, may not necessarily be good, right? No. Uh, and I, I got in the habit of outing myself immediately and saying, but don't hold that against me. I won't California your Utah. And now I want to say, don't California my Utah. Uh, and, and of course we're in danger of that. Salt Lake city has gone in some ways, the direction of places like Seattle and, and, you know, not entirely, but there, there are problems and things we need to fight for here, but I feel like at least there's a fighting chance here. Um, there used to be no, nowhere great to go buy a nice outfit if you had an event or something to go to. Not that I go to a lot of events, but you know, so, uh, and then my neighbor across the street up where I'm building open this cute little dress shop and it's oh oh well look at that so there isn't really anything that uh that we're missing uh we did find italian kale uh lucianato (laughs) you see i knew i knew we'd get to kale eventually (laughs) (laughs) and i believe that that is one of the few things we can credit californians for is that there the demand was there and so now we can make our green juice Oh Before we finish up, and we're going to finish up in a moment, um, I just think it, I'd like I'd like everyone who's listening because I just love what you do, uh, Elizabeth. Would you tell people what it is that you do? Oh, I think thank it's, you. It's it's amazing. I love it. I uh, I've been singing professionally for my entire adult life, and uh, and started teaching very early. My grandmother was my first voice teacher. And as I started getting better and people were asking about that in high school, she said, try to explain what you're doing. It'll be good for you. And by the time I was through with college, uh, which was a kind of a huge waste of time, uh, theater, a scholarship in theater. Wow. Super useful. Um, <laughs> so I started, but I was already working in musical theater and I started taking on students and, and it just was my goal to, to learn as much as I could. And rather than go to the closest teacher, go to the one on another planet for one lesson if it was the best person I could find. So I've gone around the world with the best people I could find. So I love doing that. I love teaching vocal technique. And then I was introduced by uh, my classical voice teacher in New York in 2012 to something called breathing coordination that is just an amazing thing. I found it to be the missing piece for singing and also for other things, very helpful, very uh, effective for breathing issues like emphysema, COPD, things where people think that what they're, why they're getting weaker is because of the disease and it's actually their compensatory habits. And we can teach them how to not do that and to actually have better and better performance in spite of the disease. So we're not curing the disease, but we're helping them with that. And I just, I love being able to share that. That was about two years back and forth to Switzerland to get that training and certification and bring it here. And you also do a sort of a musical therapy, right? So you've also sort of um, helped people um, through music. Isn't that correct? I would say that's correct. Well, I've, I produced fundraising concerts and that sort of thing in terms of... I. I wouldn't claim music therapy because I know there is specialized training that's just that. But right. I think all music is therapeutic. Yes. And if you are doing... 
um, that I'm, I'm looking over at my massage table when I do a voice lesson or work with someone and I work with a lot of young people here. So it isn't the world-class singers that I have worked with, but it, it's really rewarding and they're doing it because they want to do it and they want to sing hymns and whatever. Not all, but some want to do musical theater. Amazing. So it's, uh, but it's to manage the nervous system and post traumas, all of that. It's so much is related to the breathing and it's so much easier than what people think and what they tend to find online when they go looking for good breathing. I got you. I got you. I, I want to put you totally on the spot here and you can just, and we can edit this out and we okay. can not do this, but I'm, would you, would you sing us out? because you have the most beautiful voice. Is there something you'd share with us? Because you have the most beautiful voice. I just think, I'm looking at you there and I'm thinking, I kind of, it would be kind of a shame if we didn't get to hear Elizabeth <laughs> sing. And I can, so, but if I'm putting you on the spot, you can tell me, to, you know, to buzz off. But if you had something that you could share with us, that'd be just amazing. Oh, I thought about whether we might do that. I didn't have a something prepared. Well, the one for my father is that there's that one. Okay, so, do it. Yeah, do it. I'll be seeing you in all the old familiar places that this heart of mine embraces all day through. In that small cafe, the park across the way, the children's carousel, the chestnut tree, the wishing well. I'll be seeing you in every lovely summer's day, in everything that's light and gay. I'll always think of you that way. I'll find you in the morning sun and when the night is new. I'll be looking at the moon, but I'll be seeing you. Oh, God. Oh, God. Oh, my God. <laughs> I'm clapping for everyone that will be clapping when they hear this and get to see you singing that. It, it makes me just ask the question, are your, are your parents still with us? My father passed about a year and a half ago, December 19th, 2020, okay. about a month after I moved here. But you I wouldn't trade spend... the time for no. anything. No. Regret yeah. that I didn't come sooner, but it was... And I had sung that song for him for his birthday, recorded it in 1999 knowing that it was our distance at the time physically but knowing that someday it would be this distance and yeah. so it's really it's a special one i think i i think we all we heard that in magda's here <laughs> two of us and uh, we both lost our fathers so it, i mean really beautiful uh, and what a, what an what a 
I couldn't have been more perfect, Elizabeth. Uh, this is thank you so much for your time today. This has been just amazing. We are so happy that you're happy in your escape to out of out of California to beautiful, beautiful Southern Utah. And yes, I really I add we'll one, get to go and visit you soon. I hope so. And can I add one other thought for Please. those who are looking for their space? Yes. You find the general metropolis, mini metropolis that has their major medical, depending on your age. If you're in your twenties, maybe you're not worried about that. But <laughs> most of us are in maturing mode there there is probably a hidden gem within a half an hour or 45 minutes of that if you want to also be further away and the one i chose is where everything's at least an acre uh you know that all of those really nice people I, if i could send you the the next door posts there are things like three horses just ran across our, the front of our car who do the who do these babies belong to or some little french poodle found its way into our barn it's people returning animals <laughs> and it's people saying service opportunity this saturday eight o'clock show up with your rakes and we're going to do a yard clearage and your rakes and your smiles it's that kind of people oh god, oh god. it's just beautiful yeah there's so a... there are little pockets like that even if it's not the city itself or the immediate suburbs it's so interesting i, I, I you know you just make an you make an anecdote that i just i, I always tell this story i once did i did a speech one time in, in Chicago and you know th they had protests there were students out you know very annoyed about me and all that kind of thing and it was really hostile and the uh, college wherever the college was was on Lake Michigan and the weather was awful and there was this awful uh, wind and the whole thing was miserable and Im immediately afterwards I had to get on a plane and I had a speech in either I, I don't know whether I'm looking at Magda whether it was Southern California Southern South um Southern Carolina or Northern Carolina but it was one of the Carolinas and I landed and I'd never been in the Carolinas before and I literally thought someone was, you know, playing a prank on me. Like it was like, I thought there was a camera somewhere because people were so nice. I thought, like I was literally looking at them, hospital. Yeah, why are you being so nice to me? And I remember, I remember I, I booked into the hotel and the guy at the hotel or the woman at the hotel said, yeah, you've probably, you know, with the lovely accent and everything, the Southern accent, you know, you've probably come a long way, you know, you know what, you know what you'd love? You'd love our, you know, our lounge right now when we're serving oh. coffees or whatever, we're serving afternoon tea or you should have a cocktail or something. And I remember thinking, I just want to be your friend. I just want to keep in touch. I want your email address. But, and, and the problem was like, that was my, my experience with the Uber driver, with the people in the hotel and everyone was so nice to me. And I thought the contrast, the hostility in Chicago versus this kind of, so it kind of sounds like a similar, and I love that next door thing here because the next door in where I'm living and you know where I am here in Venice. Oh yes. Is, I've given up reading it because it's so hostile. It's so awful. Um, and, you know, they talk a lot. These liberals talk a lot about othering. You know, this is one of their things, mm. othering. I, I, one of these days I'm going to so put up a post where I'm going to say, yeah, how dare you? You know, because you've othered me <laughs> forever, you know, uh, with the kind of the kind of hostility to having a different opinion about something, for example, like, um, yeah, I don't think we should really kill babies. Um, <laughs> right. Nine months. Living, nine right. months, And you think that I'm, you know, you know you're, you're calling me the savage. But anyway. I'm going yes. to stop for right now. Elizabeth, Ugh. this was just gorgeous. And I so appreciate <laughs> your time. But that song, Thank you, Anne. you have broken hearts everywhere and opened hearts everywhere. We love you. We love you too. Thank you for everything you and Phelan are doing. Just um, you're gonna love, loving I, you up like crazy for I all love of it. that. I love it. And you'll love, you love the new thing that we're doing, which we can't talk about just yet. I can't about, wait. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> all right. God bless. God Thanks bless. So much, Elizabeth. Well, wasn't that amazing? Um, 
I'm, I, I'm so glad at the end it was kind of like an afterthought because I'm kind of looking at her there and you probably were looking at her on screen, anyone who's watching on YouTube and you could see the piano in the background and I was kind of looking at the piano and thinking, God, I really need to ask her to sing because I know she has this extraordinary voice and my God, her choice to sing that song, which obviously means so much to her and I think means so much to so many of us. What a, what an, what a powerful, powerful song. What a little gift we're giving you. So you didn't get a recipe, but um, we have given you the gift of the beautiful, of the beautiful, beautiful singing um, of our friend Elizabeth Prescott. So that's basically it from us. If any of you um, would like to maybe, you know, think, get in touch with us, by the way, if you've moved from a blue place to a red place, I think next week we're hoping to have our friend, uh, anyway, I won't say just in case you can't do it, but we have a friend that will, that left Albuquerque and went to Texas, went to Lubbock, and maybe we'll have her on next week. Um, to tell to tell about their experience, their family experience, and I know she's been writing to us, and she's a um, a dear friend of this podcast, and she's loving being in Lubbock. So, um, if you have a story, um, please let us know about that. And thank you so much. And as I said, I won't be on my own um, next time, so uh, we'll be welcoming Phelan back and wishing him a happy birthday and all of that. So, thanks so much for tuning in. Bye. Hey.